After nine weeks in chapter one, we are moving on to chapter two. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be reading from portions of chapter two and chapter three. Follow along and I'll tell you where we're going next. But we're going to uh, begin hearing the word of the living God in chapter two, verse one. This is Moses speaking. Then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Now verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. Verse 14. Thirty-eight years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp, as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now, when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, Today you are to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. Verse 24. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you and all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sion, king of Heshbon, offering peace. Now verse 32. When Sion and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. And now chapter 3, verse 1. Next we turned and went up along the road toward Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, with his whole army marched out to meet us in battle at Edrai. The Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands King Og of Bashan and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time we took all his cities. There was not one of the sixty cities that we did not take from them. The whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan, all these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. Spirit of God, we pray once again that you would be the teacher here this morning, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and hear and understand your truth. But mostly, Lord, we pray that we would be transformed by it and you would be glorified by your truth and by our transformation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And if you will, look with me again in verse 1. Again, it's Moses speaking, and he's reciting the history uh, uh, of the people. And he, he says, we turn back and set out toward the desert, along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Now, we might say that this is a dramatic understatement. 
Because in this one very short verse, Moses sums up what in reality was 38 years of wandering in the desert, a vast and dreadful place. As we've seen over the uh, course of the past couple of weeks, God sent his people back to the desert to discipline them because he needed to teach them the faith and the obedience and the trust that they had not displayed in their lives, but that they needed to display if they were going to be his people. So where do teachers teach and where do students learn? The classroom, right? And so the desert becomes God's classroom for his people. Now, why was the desert such a perfect classroom? Well, it seems that in the desert, you can learn without distraction. You know, after all, what what are you going to do all day in the desert? You know, build sandcastles? You know, not so much. Because that takes water, and who's going to waste water in the desert building sandcastles? What are you going to look at in the desert? Sand? The sky? The jagged mounds? What are you going to do all day in the desert? You know, sometimes we complain about distractions in our lives. I've got so much to do. There's all these distractions, all these people, all these distractions in our life. But here's the truth. When something or somebody else doesn't distract us, we distract ourselves. We do. Imagine if you went home one night and you did not have access to radio, television, internet, DVD, even a good book. What if even your cell phone battery was dead and you were completely cut off? You know, what would you do? What if your car was out of gas, you couldn't go anywhere and you had a sprained ankle and you couldn't walk anywhere? What would you do in your life without any distractions at all? Fidget? Roam around from room to room? Go to bed really early and just hope you could go to sleep so that this terrible nightmare would be over. What do you do when there's nothing to distract you? And why do we always have to fill our time with distractions? Now, what do we fear might happen if we were just quiet? What do we fear we might have to think about? What do we fear we might be forced to deal with that we don't deal with when we're so busy and distracted? For the ancient Israelites, their focus in the desert was riveted on God. And it was riveted on their own hearts. And they were forced to look without distraction, inward, heartward, at all the issues that had brought discipline on them in the first place. They were, without distraction, required to face the truth that they did not believe, they did not believe that God was trustworthy. He said to them, go and take the possession of the land. I'm giving it to you. But they in their hearts did not believe that God had the power to deliver on his promise. That he was not strong enough to wrench the promised land out of the hands of the giants that held it so tightly. They believed that God was not strong enough to protect them. And so they believed that they would be defeated and that their their sweet little children would be taken into captivity. But look in verse 7. Though they were completely exposed in the desert, there was no home to shelter them, no door to lock behind them, there was no high, thick city wall to protect and defend them, And in the midst of all that, verse 7 says, The Lord watched over your journey through this vast desert these 40 years. 
the people, 38 years later, they now are keenly aware of the fact that apart from the protection of the Lord, they would never have survived for four decades in the wilderness. Lesson learned. And so the discipline was effective. In the desert where there was nothing to eat unless God provided manna from heaven. In the desert where there was at times nothing to drink unless God miraculously caused water to flow from a rock. They were keenly aware of the provision of the Lord. In the desert where there were no shops, where there were no markets to buy clothes or buy uh, materials to make clothes. They were keenly aware of the provision of the Lord, who in fact made sure that their clothes and sandals did not wear out. Look again in verse 7. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. The people were keenly aware of the provision of the Lord, and they knew that apart from the provision of the Lord, they would have never survived in the wilderness for four decades. Lesson learned. And so the discipline was effective. In the desert, they had to focus on the fact that in their hearts, they were not convinced that they needed the presence of the Lord. You know, the people decided after they disobeyed, okay, now we'll obey. We're going to go and we're going to take the promised land. And God said to them, don't go. Do not go up and fight. I will not be with you. But scripture tells us that the people strapped on their armor anyway and off they went because they thought it easy. Because they thought it easy to fight the battle and to win. The Lord's presence or his lack of presence apparently was no concern to them. They would fight. They would win whether the Lord was with them or not. Look again in verse verse 7. These 40 years, the Lord, your God, has been with you. See, in the desert, the people learned the reality and the necessity of the presence of the Lord. And they knew that they would never have survived in the wilderness for four four decades had the Lord not been present with them. Lesson learned, and so the discipline was effective. Had all these things not, not been the experience in the desert classroom with God. The people gathered before Moses when he's speaking here. They could have booed him off the stage. Boo, Moses, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. The Lord was not present with us. The Lord did not provide for us. The Lord did not protect us. Sit down. But as the people were gathered on the plains of Moab, listening to Moses, there was not one voice raised to contradict Moses. No one booed, no one heckled, because the people knew that Moses spoke the truth. God had done those things for them. One commentator writes that God leads us to the desert, but only to empty us of all self-confidence and win us to a naked confidence in him. God leads us to the desert but only to empty us of all self-confidence and win us to a naked confidence in Him. So often you and I will not trust God if there is anyone or anything else to whom we can turn. That's the truth. And so sometimes it takes a desert to strip us of everything in which we put our confidence. Job certainly had a desert experience. 
he was a man of tremendous wealth and he lost everything that he had, including his children, all of them. In his own body, he was uh, afflicted with boils all over it. And yet Job said this, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I hope in him. Jesus once sent out his disciples to do ministry. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. And when Jesus was sitting with the disciples around the table at the Last Supper, he went back to that time in their ministry and he asked them this question, When I sent you out with no money or or sack or sandals, did you lack anything? And what do you think their answer was? Did they lack anything? No. Nothing, they replied. When Jesus stripped the disciples of what any reasonable person would provide for themselves, he provided for them. In Christ, you and I have everything we need. In Christ, you and I have everything that we need. Paul writes in Philippians 4, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He wrote that after his own, you know, desert experience. And he, he tells a testimony of, of that desert experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we felt in our hearts the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. That's what Paul learned in his desert experience where he was near death. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1-2, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Everything we need, everything we need, we have in Christ. Do you believe that? The Israelites, Job, Paul, Peter, doesn't matter. The list could go on and on and on because every child of God, every child of God has to learn what is true about Father God, to learn of His protection, His provision, His presence. So just making bare, objective statements about God, preaching bare, objective statements about the character of our glorious God, though they are absolutely true, it's not enough. What benefit are those truths to you and to me if those truths do not intersect in our lives in a meaningful way, in an experiential way, in a transformational way? And if it takes a desert experience for you and for me to know the truth, and own those truths about the character of God, then how can the desert be a bad place? 
If God sends us to a desert, you to a desert, me to a desert, if he strips us of everything, if God takes away all of our distractions, all of our amusements, and if in that time we cry out to the Lord to protect us, if in that time we cry out to the Lord to provide for us, if in that desert place we cry out to the Lord to experience the sweet presence with us. And if the Lord answers those cries, then how can the desert be a bad place? Don't you want to experience those realities for yourself? You know, I do. Are you satisfied just to know these truths about God because you read them in His Word? Or because someone else tells you that they have gotten to experience them in Their life, I'm not satisfied with that. And in this way, I'm selfish. I want to experience it. I want to know it for myself. And if it takes a distraction-free desert place to learn and experience these truths, and if we won't be quiet enough, and if we won't slow down enough, and if we won't be distraction-free enough to learn these lessons, these truths, any other way, then we should be bold enough and we should be brave enough to pray, Lord, send me to the desert. As we move on, we see that the desert doesn't last forever. God's discipline, it doesn't last forever. It only lasts as long as God needs it to last to teach you and me what we need to learn. Look in verse 2. God says to his people, you have made your way around this hill country long enough. Go north. Long enough. That's what God says. God knew exactly how long was enough time to discipline his people. 38 years was long enough. Less time was not enough time and more time was not necessary. 38 years. That's the time that God needed to teach his people what he needed them to learn. And now... God's timing for his people is for them to get up out of the desert and to head toward the promised land. So the point is that the discipline of the Lord doesn't last forever. The discipline that comes to to you and to me because of our own sin. The discipline that comes to our lives because we fail to live the lives that God has called us to live. Discipline only lasts as long as God needs it to last, to teach us what we need to learn about him. God does not dwell on the sin. God does not dwell on the sin that brought the discipline upon us, and neither should we. God doesn't dwell upon that sin, and neither should we. With this desert experience in mind, Moses, the people of Israel, would you turn with me to Psalm 103? You'll find it on page 428, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 103. And David is the one who wrote this psalm. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. He, the Lord, made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in love, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. See, that's the truth of the Lord. Discipline brings us to repentance, repentance to forgiveness, forgiveness to restoration so that we can move on, so that we can move forward when God says to us, you have stayed here long enough. You've stayed here long enough. Now move. And so I would say this to you, as I say to myself, sometimes we need to give ourselves a break. And we don't need to wallow in our sin, our our past sin. We don't need to carry the guilt of it. And we don't need to try to make up for it. We can't. We are not equipped to do that job. Only Jesus can carry the burden of our sin. Only Jesus can carry the burden of our guilt. And he does. Only Jesus can heal and restore. In Exodus chapter 15, the Lord uh, reveals himself by this name, Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord, your healer. It's the Lord who must and does heal you. It's the Lord who must and, and does heal those that your sin ha- has harmed. See, Jesus has other things for you and for me to do than to try to do what he's already done for us. He doesn't need us to double up on his job. You know, when, when the sinner snaps the ball, he doesn't need the ten other guys on his team to all go running to try to catch that ball. He only needs one quarterback. And if everybody else comes running to the quarterback, the quarterback will say, hey, got this covered. You can't throw anyway. I don't, I don't need you here. You know, I need, I need you over there and you over there and you over there. To those who want to wallow in their sin or constantly allow their guilt to, to make them try to make up for those sins, the Lord could say to us, I, I, I don't need you here. I have this position covered. Forgiveness Sin removal, guilt removal, healing, I've got that covered. I need you over here. So we need to let Jesus do his job while we get about doing the job that he has given us to do when he calls us to do it. And he knows the perfect timing of that. For you as an individual, for us as a church, he knows when long enough is long enough. When we've been in the desert long enough. When we've been striving long enough. When we've been suffering long enough when we have been lethargic or inactive long enough. And only when God says, it's enough, is it enough? Because you and I cannot force the hand of God. He will act in His time, God will act in His time, and in His time, He will call you and me and us as a church to act. You know, it's possible that the people had gotten comfortable, if you can imagine, in the desert, In the sense that they could sing, All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And it was true. It was probably pretty great to experience that. A place you want to stay when you're experiencing all these wonderful things about the Lord and His presence. But that's not all that God had for His people. There's also comes a time when God says, Move out, go. And He does this in this passage. Go, go north, He says. It's time to leave the desert. 
It's time for the rubber to meet the road. It's a time to see if the lessons taught were actually learned. And that's what God called the Israelites to do, to get out of the classroom. And that's what they did. And perhaps the greatest lesson they learned in the desert was finally to obey. So these two chapters that we've read portions of, chapter 2 and chapter 3, they describe the beginning of the conquest of the promised land, people doing what God had called them to do. And while they're doing this, they encounter five groups of people. The first three groups of people, God says, do not engage them in battle. You know, pass them by, do not engage them. But group four and group five, God says something different. He says of the fourth group, and this is in verse 24 of uh, of chapter 2, he tells them to, to, to cross the gorge. He said that he's given the king Sihon into their hands and that they are to begin to take possession of the land and to engage him in battle. That's what God commands. Now look in verse 33. The people actually obeyed. Yay! They finally obeyed. They did what God said. And verse 32 says that when the king came out to do battle against them, that the Lord delivered them. Uh, And they defeated him and his sons and his whole army, and that not even one town uh, was strong enough to stand against them. The Lord gave us all of them. Then we read this about the fifth group of people. This is in chapter 3, verse 1. Now they're dealing with King Og. And his whole army marched out to meet them. And the Lord said, Do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. And verse 4 of chapter 3 describes how they too were defeated. Here's the thing though. God did not tell these people anything differently than he had told their parents and grandparents 38 years before. He said then, the battle is mine. He said, now, the battle is mine. He said, then, I'm giving you the land. He said, now, I'm giving you the land. He told them then, do not be afraid. He told them now, do not be afraid. He told them then, I will fight for you. He told them now, I will fight for you. There were giants in the land then. King Og was a giant in the land now. So what made the difference? What made the difference between disobedience and obedience? The desert made the difference. The desert made the difference. That's the classroom where these people learned to trust and obey God. It was the greenhouse where they grew and flourished. And now it's time to go out of the greenhouse and be planted and grow in the desert. It was a training place that galvanized God's people into an army, an obedient army, prepared army, an army willing to move out for the Lord. You and I, you know what I'm going to say now, we're that army now. You and I are now the army of the Lord. They were standing on the edge of the promised land. Where are we standing? Where are we standing right now? And what is God about to do? What's God about to do if we will obey Him? It's exciting to think about, isn't it? What command is God calling us to obey? Hey, I'm at one. It just came to my mind. This is a big one. I bet you've heard this one before. See if I'm right. It's actually in Matthew 28. And Jesus says, Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, <laughs> baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, present with you, even to the end of the age. See, this is the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. The last command that he gives them before he ascends into heaven and returns to his Father. He's been with his disciples for three years. That was their classroom. He had taught them all that he needed to teach them in person as he lived with them and ministered with them. And so now classroom time is over. Now, Jesus says to them, 
Go. Move. Out into the world. This is Jesus' command to all who follow him. Go. Make disciples. But how obedient are we to that command? To going. To moving out. You know, if the Israelites ran the risk of wanting to stay in the desert and enjoy for themselves the protection, the provision, the presence of the Lord, then we as evangelical believers often run the risk that too often turns into the reality of wanting to stay in the classroom. Oh, we just want to experience the protection, the provision, the presence of the Lord all for ourselves. Because we... We, we say, we think, well, we're not ready. We're not ready to move out yet. I, I don't know enough yet. I haven't learned enough yet. I've got to study more and more and more. But what if Jesus says to you, you have been here long enough. Take what you know and go. Go out into the world. Make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. See, the command of Jesus is not know everything that I taught you. No, he says, you go and teach everything that I have commanded you. And he commands us to go. And so there's a real balance that we have to strike in our lives between knowing or learning and obeying uh, and going and doing. Which way do the scales tip in your life? I know a lot of people who know a lot of truth. Our denomination is full of a lot of people who know a lot of truth. But the question we all have to ask ourselves is how well do we live by the truth? How well are we transformed by the truth? We have to ask ourselves, what's the purpose that we seek so much truth, more and more and more? The Pharisees knew more truth than anybody on earth when Jesus walked it. But that truth didn't transform their heart. They didn't live by that truth. That truth only puffed them up. And that's what Scripture says. Knowledge puffs up. 